Welcome to the Fire These Times, a podcast dedicated to the easy task of tackling the 21st century from the periphery. I'm your host, Jure Ayub, and my goal is to use this platform to connect with activists, scholars, writers, and other weird folks from around the world to link our stories and interests up. Join me as we get into all sorts of futurisms, from solar punk to degrowth, as we explore meaningful ways of creating links between the peoples on the periphery, and as we explore various topics from tech to anti-authoritarian politics, feminism, abolitionism, decolonialism, anti-racism, and all the other fun-isms in between. This podcast is ad-free and accessible to everyone thanks to the generous donations of Patreon supporters on patreon.com slash times. For as little as $5 a month or $50 a year, you can help keep this podcast independent that way. If you're a student, unemployed, or in any kind of financial difficulties, you can support with $2 a month or $20 a year. There are also other methods such as on PayPal or buymeacoffee.com, and you can find the relevant links in the description below or on the website. My goal is to make this project financially sustainable so that I can work on producing valuable content on a regular basis such as this podcast, the newsletter, my essays, various online resources, and hopefully eventually YouTube essays as well. And if you like the content of this podcast, you can also check out the newsletter. In that newsletter, which I release on a quasi-monthly basis, I reflect on some of the topics discussed on this podcast and try to take them a bit further. The newsletter is free and you can get it by simply subscribing directly on the website. The Fire These Times is named after the James Baldwin book The Fire Next Time and the music is by Ibrahim Youssef. Thank you for listening and take care. Hey everyone, so this is a conversation with Sharon Yam. It's her second time on the podcast. Uh, she'll introduce herself in a bit for those of you who haven't listened to the first episode, uh, which is episode 46, Hong Kong Disappearances and the Cause of Disinformation. Now, this one isn't related to the first episode, so you don't have to listen to it in order to follow this uh, conversation. In this episode, we spoke about primarily in paper that she wrote called Complicating Acts of Advocacy, Tactics in the Birthing Room. So we got into a lot of different uh, concepts that Sharon was kind enough to kind of get into and explain for a wider audience. These include rhetorical analysis, reproductive justice and doulas, rhetoric of health and medicine, technocratic model of birth, the three pillars of reproductive freedom and their global implications, and so on and so forth. We also got into uh, kind of a broader question of what makes some stories untellable and as well as getting into the pitfalls of the self-made mom rhetorics and finally uh, the links between rhetoric and the anti-vax movement which is still unfortunately pretty topical so that's it for me folks thank you for listening and take care <music> Uh, Sharon Yam, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Kentucky uh, in the Department of Writing, Rhetoric, and Digital Studies. I'm also a faculty affiliate in the Gender and Women's Studies Department and uh, the Center for Equality and Social Justice. Well, Sharon, thanks for coming back again. Uh, last time I had you on, I uh, was mainly talking about Hong Kong. Uh, for those listening, that's episode 46. It's called Hong Kong Disappearances and the Emotional Cost of Disinformation. So it's quite a heavy episode, but I actually quite enjoyed it. It was very, felt very cathartic. Um, okay, so today we'll be talking about a number of things. Uh, the title of the episode, for now, I don't know if I'm going to change it, is Complicating Acts of Advocacy, Reproductive Justice, and Rhetorical Analysis. So let's just start from the start, because even the title alone might confuse a lot of people, I think. We'll be primarily talking about a paper that you wrote. Can you just talk a bit about the paper, sort of like introduce, introduce us to it? Yeah, so in that particular paper, um, I was uh, looking at a, a series, series of YouTube videos called The Doula Diaries is made by uh, the media company Grumper. Uh, so in that series, uh, they were focusing on doulas. And again, I'm going to kind of rewind a little bit for folks who may not know what doula is. Uh, doula is actually an, an ancient Greek term that means a woman servant or woman slave. Uh, and so right now, uh, you may often hear mainstream discourse about birth doulas, postpartum doulas. So those are professional support people that will guide a pregnant and birthing person uh, throughout the process. Uh, increasingly, there are also uh, other kinds of doulas, including adoption doulas or even death doulas. So doulas are essentially... Um, a support person, again, trained, but they're not medical professionals that are meant to guide uh, somebody and accompany somebody through a major life transition stage. Uh, again, because the etymology of that word is not really great, uh, again, nobody wants to be called like a slave or a women servant. 
Uh, some people are starting to calling that uh, a birth support person or birth mm-hmm. worker. And so um, the YouTube series that I analyzed, they follow um, several different uh, birth birth workers as they support different kind of pregnant and birthing person. Uh, all of them uh, are in uh, a heterosexual relationship, uh, but a big portion of them are women of color, especially black women. So in my article, um, I was analyzing these series of videos because on the one hand, they did an amazing job representing how birth workers are able to support, uh, in this case, all women, um, women of color that are disproportionately uh, being targeted by obstetric racism. Uh, But also on the other hand, uh, video series like this one kind of reinforce the idea that only heteronormative and nuclear families exist. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so by applying uh, what I call a reproductive justice oriented framework to study that, uh, I'm able to kind of also simultaneously recognize what this video series has done well, but also at the same time, what kind of family formations they are uh, marginalizing. Right. Uh, that that's honestly really interesting. And how did you how did you go from from rhetorical analysis to thinking about the link between that and and reproductive justice? What does that sort of look like for you? So I um, again, my my other I, my first interest started is that I'm interested in the ways in which uh, birth workers advocate for people. Uh, again, as, as a rhetorician, we think a lot about advocacy and persuasion, right? right? So there's a tricky thing that happened with birth workers is that they are not medical professionals. So when they go into a hospital setting, they are really just kind of uh, on the whim of the medical provider can at a drop of a hat say that, I don't like your presence, you're out of the birthing room, right? So in those instances, Um, If if they got kicked out, then they won't be able to advocate for their marginalized clients. But on the other hand, if they were to stay there and not say anything overtly, even when there are instances of uh, medical uh, racism, then they're also not advocating and not necessarily doing their uh, clients any favor. And so as a rhetorician, I was really curious as to how birth workers and many, most of them women, uh, navigate this kind of tension. Like, how do you advocate without being confrontational? Mm-hmm. Um, and also, how do you ne- also negotiate that their liminal status is that they are professional, so they've seen so many more births than their client, but their experience is often not recognized by a lot of medical providers because they also doesn't have like medical training. So they kind of have this liminal space of like authority versus being seen as an amateur, uh, just like an auntie. And so I started doing interviews uh, with these birth workers and like, how, how do you do this? Uh, do you even advocate at all? Do you, do you see your role as merely a comforting presence? Uh, and so that's how I started doing that. Um, and while I was uh, interview- conducting qualitative research on, on birth workers, I also encounter um, the reproductive justice, which is a theoretical framework and also a praxis, started by women of color uh, and black women uh, in around 1994. And so my question then became, because there's also around this time recently, more and more birth workers saying that we want to not just focus on birth, but we want to be focusing on reproductive justice as a whole. So to also think about, you know, being an abortion doula, like covering all spectrum of reproduction. So that's when I started to make the connection that um, how exactly can we use this kind of thinking uh, into and, and incorporate that into the rhetorical analysis that we do. So you, you look at these um, these doula diaries, and listeners know this by now. I'll obviously include all of these links in the show notes. It's on YouTube. Um, how how does one? What are some common? I know that's a weird question, but what are some common motivations for someone to want to become a doula? Is it like a happenstance? Is it like a generational? Like you know, I did it because my parents did it. You know that kind of thing. How how does it happen? Oh, so this is interesting. Um... I, I can only speak for the U.S. context. Sure. Um, so doulas earlier on before birth, childbirth is so medicalized uh, and to an extent pathologized, 
doulas are just kind of people in your community that has older women usually have a lot of experience giving birth. They're kind of taking care of babies and they'll show up uh, while you're giving birth uh, in addition to the midwife. But later on, um, when, you know, the OBGYN uh, profession kind of took over midwifery, um, birth became more medicalized. And so doulas or birth workers is a little bit less common. Mm-hmm. Um, and then kind of in around the 70s and 80s, uh, to white women in the U.S., at least this is kind of the mainstream discourse. Of course, black granny midwives have been doing that for, for a long time. They started professionalizing doula as um, a profession that people could get trained in. Uh, so the Penny Simpkin is one of the names. Uh, so people can take a course. Uh, as part of my participant observation, I have um, kind of completed two different doula trainings. So usually how in the States right now, uh, DONA, which is Doula of North America, is a pro- main professional organization. Mm. So you only need to complete a course that takes about one full weekend. And then you can go and say that you're birth doula and start um, co- accompanying people or taking clients. Uh, there are also certification in which you have to pay uh, in order to do, do that. And so right now, some of the criticisms is that it became a little bit kind of like um, yoga teacher training where people right. can get a certain hour certified. But the range of training really differs because someone, again, same as doula, you you can train online, you can train with a major organization, or you can train with uh, many other organizations. Some has a much more uh, leftist political bent to their approach, while the other ones, including Dona, it's more like mainstream, don't rock the boat. Your only job is to providing a comfort and presence kind of kind of deal. Right. And I'm very interested, you mentioned before, like the kind of a broadening of the reproductive justice framework. Um, you write, and um, I'm quoting here, as black feminist activist scholars point out, securing individuals' right not to have children is alone insufficient in addressing the compounding systems of oppression that marginalized communities face in their reproductive lives. And then you, you list uh, three pillars, intersecting mm-hmm. pillars of reproductive freedom. So they are like the right not to have a child, the right mm-hmm. to have a child, and the right to parent children in safe and healthy environments. And I think it's fair to say that most people, myself included, up until like I think reading your 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 paper basically, we do know about the first two. You know, it's kind of it, it it's I, I wish I, I wish I could say common sense, but it feels common sense anyway, you know, where mm-hmm. uh, people should do what they want to do with their body, essentially. Uh, but the third one is the one that is more, it has kind of a societal implication. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the three of them do technically, but the mm-hmm. third one has a more implicit one. So can you, can you kind of walk us through this and why do you think the third one is often not, uh, let's say, prioritized? Yeah. So again, the third one is to pair be, the ability to parent your children in a safe and sustainable environment, right? That that can mean a lot of things. So for instance, in the US, reproductive justice uh, activists are also advocating for gun control. For example, if you have living in a community with a lot of gun violence, it is not safe with mass school shooting. So in the, on the other hand, you can also think about in terms of um, environmental racism, Mm-hmm. Uh, certain areas are having kind of toxins dumped on their on their land and community. That again leads to so thinking about the Flint water crisis. Yeah. The children are drinking um, water that again is harmful to their health. So you're absolutely right that the third pillar in particular um, really highlight the interconnectedness between reproduction and a whole host of societal issues, right? So I think that generally, if you even think about more, not white feminist discourse about reproduction tend to be about choice. Mm-hmm. That is kind of a more capitalist, like I'm a consumer, I'm supposed to be able to choose. But that framing, um, if you, uh, reproductive justice advocates argue that is quite limiting uh, because again, first of all, you're kind of confining the public imagination to thinking about oh, reproduction is only about a women's issue mm-hmm. and it's only a consumerist issue about individual liberty. But when you're thinking about okay, yes, you have you you have a kid now. 
But then what if you just are in an environment where it's not safe to raise children? So the sense of safety then uh, became, you cannot think about safety and cannot think about raising children in a healthy environment without also considering a lot of the institutional forces that are not just about consumer choices. Yeah, and the the justice aspect is is key, I guess, because I can easily imagine a and unfortunately, this is where my brain takes me. But I can easily imagine a like a conservative uh, family saying, you know, well, the right to uh, what was it like to to parent children in safe and healthy environments, you know, actually reinforces the quote unquote traditional family, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the usual stuff that we often we often feel from the right, the right. So. In addition to this, it's important to en- emphasize, which obviously you're doing, the the the, the justice aspect of it because mm-hmm. it's a society. There are lots of societal implications from something as simple as, well, okay, it should. It's obviously it should be. It's important to have the right to uh, want to to choose to have a child or not mm-hmm. to have a child. That's obviously very important, but <laughs> where the child is actually going to grow up is as important, if not more important, basically. And yeah, it's very interesting. The way you're framing it, it makes a lot of sense to me, um, especially as it does definitely fit into choice, quote unquote, as yeah. as a consumerist thing rather than as as an ethical or as a as a uh, as a right, essentially. Uh, yeah. yeah. And I also kind of want to highlight the the other point about the right to have children, and I think that um, at least in the U.S when we consider reproductive politics, a lot of people are just thinking, oh, if, if you are on the left and you're thinking about reproduction, you're only just for abortion. Yes. Uh, and that's a highly reductive view, uh, especially not true for reproductive justice, I call it RJ. Um, again, RJ had this one pillar on the right to have children and that connects to a long history of eugenics, mm-hmm. a long history and ongoing um, actions in sterilizing um, incarcerated people, um, women of color, especially black women. And I can you can even think consider that um, globally, right? Um, in Xinjiang, we hear about Uyghur women being have forced IUD implants. Mm-hmm. A lot of these things, it's also about a biopolitical control of like certain people who are deemed inferior or racialized are not supposed to reproduce because of that sentiment that reproduction is only about proffering uh, an ideal future citizenry. So so in that sense that the right for everybody to have children also kind of connects to disability justice as well uh, in the sense of um, people with disability or under conservatorship uh, often were not allowed to have children and, and some US states still have the laws that will allow parents of um, children with disability to forcibly uh, sterilize them. Oh, I actually didn't know about that. Wow. Okay. Uh, I. I mean, yeah. No, that that also makes a lot of sense. I can. And also, also doesn't it also go back to the the notion of like you know, women's body as being equal to the nation? And we also always mm-hmm. see these, you know, obviously in in, in right wing discourse to this day. Um, mm-hmm. It's pretty much the same. I can think of like just to briefly mention a, a, a very obvious Lebanon example, which is in Lebanon, women still can't pass on the nationality, pass down the nationality. Um, and the the reason, quote unquote, for that is actually because everything is sectarian in Lebanon. It goes back to the fact that it, I'm not going to get too much into it, but it's about like, uh, let's say a Lebanese woman married to a Palestinian man or to a Syrian mm-hmm. man. Uh, the politicians who are against this don't want those Syrian men to become mm-hmm. Lebanese, essentially. And so it becomes depriving the Lebanese woman from her right to pass on the citizenship because she made the the quote-unquote choice or the mistake, let's say, of marrying a non-Lebanese in, in this context. So, yeah, you, we can really go through different yeah. examples. But yeah. Um, one second. So, okay. So there's this other thing. This So this is the maybe more academic one. So uh, help me out as much as you can on this. Okay. Um, because, you know, go the audience and stuff. And I am, um, yeah, I want I want people to, to understand what I'm saying because I, 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 I always worry that I'm confusing myself and others in the process. But so you write that uh, reproductive justice's um, intersectional uh, orientation has the potential to enrich studies in the rhetorics of health and medicine, uh, RHM. Okay, can you sort of explain that if that's okay? And then I have a kind of a follow-up. 
Yeah, so uh, rhetoric of health and medicine is a kind of subfield in rhetoric that looks into discourse surrounding usually the body. So that include um, looking into medical documents, patient menus, uh, and, and some recent hot topics include uh, some of my colleagues like do study, uh, why do people, people who are anti-vax, what arguments do they make? And when we combat them and try to give them facts, is it rhetorically actually effective and change their mind? So those are kind of some of the questions that uh, RHM scholars look into. Uh, and one reason why I was making the argument that say reproductive justice as a framework has a lot to offer is that you can kind of think about discourse in health and medicine. We cannot separate that from um, thinking through in terms of people's positionalities, respective privileges and marginalization. Mm -hmm. um, and so reproductive justice as a framework really allow us to think through that because it's founded by black women, indigenous women and, and women of color. They are intersectional, again, using Kimberly Crenshaw's here, uh, occupying kind of multiple nexus of marginalization. So they know that, yes, as women, we're marginalized in one way, but uh, we our experience is not the same as a white woman's experience. So blackness or indigeneity, all of these things, and then plus social class, all of these things are kind of impacting how they are being acted on by dominant medical institutions and practices. So my argument here is that when we study these rhetorics of health and medicine, if you don't also think through how um, the community members and community stakeholders are differentially being impacted by it, we're missing kind of a big chunk of uh, how biopolitics work. Right. And so, okay, so there is this, the follow-up was, a, you, there's, a, there's this um, sentence that you wrote, which is, uh, when analyzing the rhetorical effects of medical documents and practices on birth, rhetoricians who adopt an RJ, so uh, uh, reproductive justice informed model, will address the cis-heteronormative assumptions in pregnancy and birth discourse and interrogate how non-normative users interact with these artifacts based on their specific lived experiences compared to mainstream audiences. And so from what I, from what I understand is it's not just treating uh, people who are non-normative as special cases, quote unquote, but actually like their experiences as being as valuable, as, uh, le as legitimate, essentially as valid, as as anyone else's experiences and through that if we take that framework and use that as our base and a base assumption mm -hmm. question what is considered normative yes. what is considered yeah. quote unquote normal right? does that make mm -hmm. sense yes yeah exactly okay. so i'll give an example it's that yeah. um there is a report called battling over birth in which uh, the researchers conduct community interviews and focus group with um, a large number of black women uh, in, in California, asking them just kind of a wide range of questions about their pregnancy and birth experiences. And a lot of the women uh, said that they hesitated and some truths even not to go to seek medical tests during their pregnancy. And so I think uh, on the first glance, if for someone with privilege would be like, oh, these women, again, if you have a racist overtone to it, maybe like these black women, they may not, uh, they, they don't understand they're irresponsible to themselves and their fetus. But it, it, again, the intersectional framework is like, okay, what is going on in there? One is that a lot of these interviewees mentioned that they don't want to go uh, to get health checks because they often treat it poorly. Uh, they often encounter medical racism. There is also a rightful distrust of the medical institution in part because of previous, you know, medical testing on black bodies without their consent. And so if you kind of think about it that way, the mainstream protocol of, oh, when you get pregnant, you go go to your OBGYN and get tested uh, and get health checks, that on the surface seems like a no-brainer. But if you kind of consider that from a more historical and intersectional perspective, you're starting to see why just telling people to go get your pregnancy checked out that blanket statement is just not relevant to a lot of people's experience. I mean, it's so this is very different, but even in my limited experience here, um, so I'm in Switzerland, 
there are lots of things that have like just these obstacles that exist uh, when, mm-hmm. because it's a, it's a it's also a privatized healthcare system in Switzerland as well, like the American one actually. Um, well, I would argue probably slightly better, but it, it has lots of its its problems as well. Um, those obstacles reduce the likelihood of me. So, in theory, let's say I want to I want to look up a therapist. I want to find a therapist. Mm-hmm. In theory, it's straightforward. You call up some number. <laughs> Uh, they redirect you somewhere else. You know, it's kind of a process. But in practice, you there are like waiting lists if you're, you know, citizen or non-citizen, or there are waiting lists mm-hmm. if you're um, any really any kind of of different legitimate factors essentially. That in what basically what it, what what how it translates into is that well, in theory, I have the same kind of access yes. as other people. And you know, again, I'm I'm nowhere near kind of the worst case scenario here but like in theory i have access to the same kind of stuff but in practice Mm -hmm. i don't and it's it's that kind of thing where if we focus on those experiences then we then re-question why are there these obstacles in the first place why are you know and then it kind of can brought in a scale it up essentially if that makes sense yes exactly again i i think that um again using this more intersectional framework and thinking about why non-normative people often don't feel comfortable utilizing dominant institutions, it kind of prompts us to question mainstream practices. We assume that they are just regular protocols. So in my interviews of birth workers, a lot of the times they said that their role is to question hospital protocol. Um, For instance, they may have, this is a little bit less frequently performed, but they still happen. Uh, epistemology, uh, so which is a procedure in which the OBGYN will cut part of the vaginal tissue during childbirth. And the idea is that, um, so if you were to cut it, uh, then it's less likely to tear. But again, research has shown that that's not true at all. Actually, the cutting costs more damage. Uh, however, there's some more old school um, obstetrician that will still do that sometimes without telling the patient, they just take a pair of scissors and like, and cut. And so some of the the interviewees that I have say that they, of course, they saw what is happening. And often what they would do is they kind of ask, hey, Dr. So-and-so, looks like you picked up scissors. What are you trying to do? Um, So kind of asking, prompting the providers to question the protocol, um, rather than otherwise, they may just think that, oh, this is just part of my menu. This is just part of everyday practice. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. And another example may be to think about um, queer people or trans people who are pregnant. Um, again, technically, they can seek medical treatment uh, the way that everybody can. But um, discourse and medical practices surrounding pregnancy and birth is highly gendered. So they may not feel comfortable being in a place where they were constantly being called women when they did not identify as such. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one thing to have access in theory, but it's another thing to, like, it, I don't know, if you have, like, 10 options to constantly worry, like, which one of those 10 is most likely to do you damage or most likely to respect you. It's like a different kind of calculation that, that you will have to make, essentially. Um, is this related to, you, you had, there's this term that you use, like, the technocratic model of birth. Yeah. Um, they, because you, so you give the example of Khadija. Um, actually, I don't remember. Was she was she in 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 the Dula Diaries? Yeah. Okay. So she's a working class black woman, um, and so this is what you write about about her example, her 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 story. Uh, in a mainstream hospital setting, providers are trained to preserve the status quo and power hierarchy between them and their patients, partly through administering what they consider to be routine procedures without always mm-hmm. fully giving patients the opportunities to question mm-hmm. and refuse them, what we just mentioned. Mm-hmm. And uh, this respect for the birthing uh, person's bodily autonomy and informed choice is compounded when the person is disadvantaged by other marginalized positions they occupy, uh, end quote. Mm-hmm. So this goes back to the whole question of autonomy and choosing. It's one thing to have that... I guess I'm just repeating myself. It's, it's one thing to have that in theory. It's another thing to actually not know or even know in advance that the doctor that you may be seeing is likely to, you know, yes. already have conclusions uh, in advance because mm-hmm. um, because you're black or because you're trans mm-hmm. or because, you know, X, Y, and Z, whatever. And we see this, I mean, even in... Um, 
like cis straight women cases. I know this from family members who misdiagnose very late because their, you know, period pains were not taken too seriously because, oh, Mm -hmm. that's just a normal monthly thing or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But so with that in mind, or maybe using uh, Khadija's story, how would you explain um, what you call it again? Uh, the technocratic model of birth and how, yeah, like what, what's the problem with it? Let's put it that way. Yeah. So that concept, um, it's termed by an, a medical anthropologist, Robbie Davis Floyd. Uh, so she distinguished a technocratic model from what she called a more humanist model, or uh, and then in between you have a blended one. So technocratic one, it's um, training doctors as if they are always following a specific set of protocol. And so you value efficiency uh, and you value certainty. So then for instance, you often hear doctors saying that, oh, you have to be induced at a certain week, otherwise your baby will be too big and it will be dangerous. And again, research actually shows that that's not always true. And in fact, a lot of the cases, even if you're not induced, you, it's okay. Uh, or that a lot of some hospitals and some obstetricians have a much higher rate of going through a C-section, uh, in part because C-section is a surgery that can be scheduled. So you know when it's going to be done. Versus if you have somebody do a, a vaginal birth, especially the unmedicated one, you have no idea how long you may be held up. And so a technocratic model, again, it's a, you can think about it as valuing more of a commercial model, uh, thinking of the body as if it is a machine. So if you're not doing, your body is not doing the way that the textbooks or the protocols are supposed to be doing, that might be something wrong with your body. So we're going to do interventions to fix it. Um, and so they're not necessarily seeing the patient or the birthing person as a person that is not just having a mechanical body. Um, And so a humanistic view, on the other hand, it's again, a more holistic lens of seeing that. Um, And so thinking about, yeah, somebody may not opt for an epidural, which is, um, it's an injection put up through the spine that will numb you from the waist down. Some people may not want that, uh, or offering a variety of pain management, um, and also not using uh, medical interventions uh, as quickly just because a birth is not progressing according to the textbook. This completely ties into like the what we started talking about the the whole the societal implications because I mean for one those we often hear a lot of stories of how why uh, are certain procedures financed better than others. And there's almost always like a gender and or a racist and or a class, mm-hmm. you know, component to it. Um, very straightforward things like, you know, under research and endometriosis, which is something that mm-hmm. recently because of a family member is recently something that we I'm trying to learn about. Um, uh, and, you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And also the the notion of the, if I understand correctly, like the, the, um, Sorry, what was it called again? The technocratic uh, model, uh, not just of birth, but like in general, it's also like, you know, you only have a certain allocated amount of time because it's yes. it costs money. And if the, then it goes back to what is insured if, if you live in that in that kind mm-hmm. of healthcare system and other mm-hmm. some stuff, you know, you will actually have to wait a bit longer because I can very basic examples like um my insurance this year runs at the end uh, finishes at the end of this year and then there's a new one starting january so if uh-huh. if you know i, I met my crimes i want to you know I, I can see the doctor now in december and it will be covered and i see if i see the doctor in january it's not covered anymore mm-hmm. it's it's very basic stuff like this and obviously you can scale it up and you can in using the intersection framework mm-hmm. include all of those other factors and i guess um sometimes maybe naively so, but a bit baffled that this isn't more obvious. But, okay, so that being said, um, so this this, this is going to be a weird pivot, but um, uh, bear with me. Um, we Last time I had you on, we spoke about, well, very different topic at, at surface level anyway, like uh, Hong Kong, and we I think we mentioned like disinformation and the, the, the heaviness of disinformation and even mm-hmm. trauma, all of that. I'm kind of curious in a kind of a purposefully abstract way. 
of because you talk a lot you mentioned stories that are untellable right like there are stories that you 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 tell the stories of those people that are deemed to be untellable and so very broadly my question is going to be broad just to kind of give you the space to yeah talk you know say whatever you want but like what what makes some stories in your view untellable um compared to others if that makes sense yeah, so so I, I remember writing in that line in my article I wrote about certain birth stories are not tellable, which which kind of it's what make the Doula Diary, despite some of its flaws, uh, a powerful documentary. Um, so certain stories are untellable in the sense that it does not fit into the mainstream imaginary of what that thing should be. So for instance, you may tell a birth story that you know have struggles, but you ended up having this healthy, beautiful child, and you then live happily ever after. Uh, but the untellable stories from some of my interviewee was like, sometimes what if the, the ambivalence with a pregnancy or um, the struggles with postpartum, think you're feeling like the depression, mm-hmm. feeling like, you know, maybe I made a mistake, I don't want this child or trauma that was induced uh, during the birthing process. So those became untellable. Or if they were told, um, the person often experienced a lot of shame, in part because their stories do not fit into the narrative of what we want to hear. And and that, again, also ties into um, other aspects of the rhetoric of health and medicine. For example, uh, a colleague of mine wrote about what kind of narratives we want to hear from cancer patients. We often want the, to hear that they are resilient and they continue Survivors to do things or... and are inspired. Yeah, and are inspiring. Anything else were rendered uh, kind of just either liminal at best or kind of abject at most. Be like, what, why is this such a perverted narrative? So, a birth especially is another one, um, and I, I would say that. In, is there also a trend of call kind of the self-made mom, which is if you, it's a whole genre of YouTube videos and Instagram posts of women having home birth without any medication, without, because it's called free birth. Right. Um, so the narrative there is that, you know, by going through this free birth, you tapped into this biologically essentialist like women power. And so if you have not gone that route, if you have used an epidural or have a C-section, then you're somehow not as womanly or you're not as strong and not as good a mother. So that kind of assumption also makes uh, medicated birth for some people. Like They don't want to talk about it because it doesn't fit into that imaginary of like this powerful woman having a natural birth experience. Which goes back again to you mentioned the self-made thing. It it it's, I mean, it's incredible how many things go back to that. Of uh, yeah, like individual choices, individual thing is just you, and if you don't do it right, that's basically your fault. And mm-hmm. uh, just to because you mentioned it before, and I I feel like I can't help but ask that question about the anti-vax stuff because, I mean, uh, Switzerland has uh, I think comparable rates of vaccination to the U.S., uh, which is relatively low to other places. Mm-hmm. So, and it's not exactly the same kind of dynamics, but there are certain dynamics that are similar that I can definitely see here as well, uh, especially the the sort of intersection with far-right stuff, which we, we were mm-hmm. seeing more and more about, uh, more and more of, I mean, uh, in Switzerland, but in France as well, I think in the UK yeah. as well, and Germany for sure. Uh, you mentioned that there is kind of a whole, um, I don't know, maybe like a field of study, or at least lots of people are asking the question of like, well, how do we talk to someone who would identify as an anti-vaxxer, for example? And there is that question. And I know that just throwing facts often doesn't work. Uh, I know this from just like other aspects that other, um, let's say, um, situations that in many ways are even darker than the anti-vax stuff, although it's getting darker in that sense as well. Um, What are, from what you know, anyway, what are certain... I'm not going to say tips because that doesn't make much sense, but there are certain practices that um, if someone listening does know someone who is anti-vax or um, let me actually, let me, let me this way. You, you, because you, 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 you study the link between reproductive justice and rhetorical analysis. What are certain things that rhetorical analysis can offer? Let's put it that way. Even maybe uh, RJ framework can offer us in 
tackling that issue. Let's let's put it that way. Yeah. So, for instance, uh, my colleagues who study that uh, again, I can kind of email you the link later. Um, had found that they were looking into uh, internet forums of people who are like arguing with each other. Often the issue is is that they are fundamentally occupying different kinds of truth realities. So you can see that happening not just with vaccine, uh, but also, for example, the U.S. The election, whether the election is fraudulent, is that some folks do not see certain evidence, or in this case, scientific evidence, as credible. Uh, and so when one group is seeing anecdotal evidence that, oh, my friend's kid got autism, and so I don't, after getting vaccinated, so that's also highly ableist. Um, but they're seeing that as an evidence base, so they already have distress of authority, and then here you are quoting the CDC to them, it's going to make them double down because essentially uh, in, in rhetorical theory is something called stasis theory, which is in ancient Roman court when in a court case, when you're arguing something, uh, they often will ask you to go through four questions. One is like, is there a problem? Second layer, what is the definition of the problem? Uh, what is the degree? So if you don't do anything about it, what will happen? And the last one is like the policy and like what what what, what should we do about it? And, and so in that particular tradition, they will actually ask the two sides to stop until they can reach stasis on one level, each level. And so here, the vaccine, you can think that we're already arguing about at the policy level what we should and should not do. But when they're already not agreeing whether there is a problem, the definition of the problem. So it ended up is kind of the, con the conversation ended up being just constantly talking past across each other when there's not even an established reality, shared reality and vocabularies of, of doing so. Um, and so, yeah, so, so I think there's some strategies that researchers have identified include kind of like using stories to counter their stories rather mm -hmm. than solely holding on to what we think it's are, are the evidence and facts, even though they really are the evidence and facts. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, um, the autism thing always makes me laugh because I'm, I'm autistic. And the um, when I got my second shot, I just joked that I got like an upgrade in my autism. And <laughs> it's it's just one of those things where like, I, I do, I do have, I, I admit, I do have difficulties. Uh, luckily, no one I know in family and friends, which is incredible given the statistics that we know is like, there was, there was like some vaccine hesitancy at first, especially mm -hmm. when the information that was coming in was a bit confusing for a lot of people. And so like, I, I can understand that. And most of the time you can just have a chat and, you know, it's not like a hardline mm -hmm. position or anything. Um, but yeah, I do admit that I, I still have difficulties to this day. It's been two years. It's going to be two years soon of a pandemic at the end of the day. And it's, it's, it, it feels a lot like the, the, um, the conversation, and I feel like I'm giving it too much uh, value by calling it a conversation, because as you said, it's often just talking past one another. Um, mm -hmm. And, it's, you know, at this point, it's like almost entirely online, yelling at each other online or yelling to each other online about mm -hmm. other people. And occasionally this uh, manifesting itself in often bad ways uh, on the streets. I mean, we're, we're chatting on the November 22nd, there was like riots in Rotterdam two days ago and in the US mm -hmm. it's ongoing. And I mean, lots, lots, I'm, I'm sure there are lots of examples. And even by the time this comes out in, in January, there's going to be even more examples, unfortunately. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's something that I'm, I'm trying to my best to not, um, not judge necessarily. I do know where the, disinfo the disinformation especially comes from, but also where the misinformation networks come from. That's my way of coping or like intellectualizing it is my way of coping with it because otherwise I'm just I'm just gonna insult that anti-vaxxers online, which is not gonna do any difference. Um, so yeah, that's that's just that's just me. But listeners can reach their own conclusions. You know, <laughs> if there there are people who are way more pissed off than I am, and I have conversations about it with them. And yeah, it it yeah. Anyway, this is kind of a, a conversation in of itself, I think. But it does bring me to the the a question I had or I still have of like. I, everything you mentioned, you know, in many ways, okay, this can be like, okay, this is just an academic thing. We can just talk about it within academic circles, but everything that you also mentioned, I can definitely see, um, how do you say, like applications mm -hmm. 
in in the activist world or applications and even policy world and just things that were I'm I'm trying my best in this podcast if that's not clear by now that that to argue if you want that the stuff that we can learn in academia not all of them but a lot of them have real life consequences and by the fact that they're not out there the way they should be is a problem in and of itself so can walk us through a bit more if that's okay you already did a bit but you might i the first question i think i asked like how did you go from uh, thinking about rhetoric to 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 thinking about reproductive justice if that's okay to just ask you to expand a bit more on that because i'm very curious and i think listeners who are struggling with other stuff like the anti-vaxxer stuff that we mentioned which is probably the the most topical thing at this moment to kind of make sense of how information is is ah this is it this is, sorry i'm gonna i'm confusing myself as well like how how information can be weaponized okay we know this mm-hmm. but why is information in of itself not enough if that mm-hmm. yeah tell me tell yeah. me if this was confusing no it makes all sense so okay. I, I again using the anti-vax example yeah. again um there's we have often have this cognitive bias called like the false dichotomy which is like well we are the smart one and those people who like don't think like us they're all the same so we have kind of this also outgroup homogeneity right yeah thinking that our in-group we have nuance but those people they're all kind of dumb and you know they, they think in a weird way but so with the anti-vaccine or vaccine hesitancy they're actually in in the u.s a lot of vaccine hesitant people are people of color, yeah, black people, yeah. Latina people. Uh, if we were to say that, oh, they're all just, they're just Trumpers, they're just like far right people, we're actually erasing a lot of the historical causes we think among, among that the phenomenon. So I think that in that case, using an intersectional approach would kind of prompt us to think about, okay, what so for black people who historically were marginalized by government health system Mm -hmm. they are rightfully suspicious that hey it's free like you never offer us free stuff is only when you're trying to test do medical testing on on black bodies so why i never never thought about that right yeah okay yeah so there's a lot of distrust about we always have to pay for things it never is free and now you're giving this thing for free must be something fishy is going on right uh, so similarly, kind of with the, with the Hispanic Latina communities, it's also a historic um, without any much of any relationship with the public health system, and only is within the pandemic that there the doors are being knocked on saying hey, you need to get vaccinated, and so without any prior relationship, and also the relationship with the government tends to be one of surveillance for for mm-hmm. most people of color uh, mm-hmm. communities. So they're also kind of questioning, like, really, is this sounds too good to be true? Something must not be right. So that means I kind of use this as an example to highlight why a one size argument doesn't really fit all. So you may tell them, hey, no, I'll give you all the science. This is great. But those none of those arguments is going to help erase or ameliorate that sense of suspicion that they felt that is long held for generations. So I think that's one reason too. Um, why argumentation, you can have the most foolproof, logical argument, and it still won't work if you're not kind of contextualizing what situation you're speaking in right now. Yeah, I can, I will, I will um, remember the specifics and I will link it in the show notes, but I can think of the many um, examples and stories that I've read of, for example, I think it's in it's definitely somewhere in, in modern North America, but it was an, it's an indigenous group that was disproportionately affected by COVID. And the way they tackled it, because there was a lot of vaccine hesitancy, uh, sorry, vaccine mm-hmm. hesitancy, um, in addition to the structural problems of like lack of access to, 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 to healthcare and stuff like that, the way they tackled it is actually, it was a community-based solution. They had a bunch of people just mm-hmm. literally from the community go you know, door-to-door essentially and, and, and vaccinate a bunch of people. And I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, there was a very similar example as well in the, in, in Brazil with uh, an indigenous community there. And I'm sure there's many more examples of that. So I'll find some of them and include them in the in the in the show notes and description. And I guess, I guess the lesson there is pretty obvious that 
if if the if part of the problem and i'm putting aside the the you know the far right stuff and the stuff that kind of like which i think a lot of people are what they think about and it is a problem and probably going to become more more of a problem but it's also the case that if our goal is for example to vaccinate as many people as possible if our goal is to stop misinformation and disinformation etc etc it doesn't like even from a purely pragmatic policy whatever level it doesn't make much even activist level it doesn't make much sense to say they're all the same fuck them Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. you know whatever and you know i say this with a lot of caveats because again i I don't think i'm particularly good at this i do think i'm someone who i'm very impatient i'm very tired i admit it but because i admit it i also don't participate online in that kind of discourses because i feel like i'm not gonna be very good at it so yeah uh but it yeah or when i do i share i i have shared that story of the the indigenous community for example because then that feels that well maybe this is one way of actually dealing with it and i also thought mm-hmm. I, I forgot the name i will remember it again and sorry i'm bad at this but um i put it on the show there's a podcast uh that is entirely it's hosted by two uh african-americans i believe and it's entirely about conspiracies in the african-american community and so it's it's like comedy as well so like they joke about it and it's like you know the a lot of things about the man and stuff like that but i i'm fairly convinced i'm fairly if i remember correctly there is also an episode on the anti-vax issue uh and i'm sure uh, i remember they tackled it in a very nuanced way in a very way that like is feels persuade like it they would persuade people instead of convincing people if that makes sense mm-hmm. and this this yeah i mean it, it feels it feels that this is is the way to go if that makes sense yeah yeah and and also in the states there are uh, public health officials uh and also uh doctors are starting to pivot their approach with the latina latinx community so instead of just having here are some leaflets uh they're doing zoom town halls in spanish and allowing people to ask questions uh, having also latinx medical providers answer some of the questions uh so so those they, they, this particular approach, uh, medical, the public health officials like, yeah, it's not going to be fast. I think another thing is that, again, we're thinking connecting back to the technocratic model. We want efficiency. We want it to be like we just roll out something and then it, it will work in a large scale. But you can think about it having community-based uh, outreach, community-based approaches. They are kind of by definition small and not necessarily like at a national level. So, so so often the tension is like, you know, we can gradually scale up and hopefully that one community will kind of spread the information out, but it's not really the dominant preference, which is like to do it fast and scale up immediately. Yeah, yeah, which I, I mean, I, I completely agree that this is, yeah, it feels like this is the way to go. Uh, which poses kind of the question of like how to do this when time is of the essence and when there is this component and you know mm-hmm. the yeah I mean it's that that's probably for smarter people than I'm than me on this but anyway the um, uh, so just go back to 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 RJ and to reproductive justice in general before getting to the the book section uh, gonna finish the episode mm-hmm. um, what what are certain other venue like in your research you you went through all of these the stories the doula diaries and other examples and you went through statistics and you know a bunch of data and stuff like that what are certain uh, open what are certain questions that came out of that research that you maybe one day would get into what are sort of like open questions does that make sense that because I can I can imagine the more you dig deep the more questions are gonna arise from um, well you know intersection framework by definition tries to be as inclusive as possible so yeah, what are certain like future venues if you want of exploration for you when it comes to the link between yeah between reproductive justice between and rhetoric or rhetoric rhetoric analysis yeah so right now i'm actually collaborating uh with dr natalie fixmer or it's at the university of iowa on a book project uh on rj so that particular uh, book project we are kind of looking into the gender and sexuality the language aspect uh, what we're finding, again, we, we talked about how uh, practices and mainstream discourse on birth and pregnancy is so gendered to the extent of often assuming a sense of biological essentialism, like, oh, the woman body can give birth uh, and we'll have something called like, the orgasmic birth from the midwife in her main gasket. 
But on the other hand, non-binary people, trans people give birth and get pregnant too. And so our question is that uh, there are reproductive rights organizations that insist on using the word women uh, rather than people. So uh, including reproductive justice, some uh, activists, uh, Black women, activists, Indigenous women, their argument is that if we were to move away from this women-centered language, then we are erasing part of their experience and oppression that is based on their gender identity. But on the other hand, we have intersectional feminists and trans and queer non-binary people are like, we're not erasing anything. We are just merely wanting to include other gendered identities. And so um, we are right now writing uh, a bulk manuscript uh, looking into how different stakeholders navigate this. So that will include uh, queer and non-binary parents, uh, birth workers, including a lot of queer birth workers and how they navigate that. Uh, And then also reproductive right organizations. Uh, Some of them have to have women in their name or in their project for funding purposes, because there are certain fundings that are only for women's health. And so if they said pregnant people's health, they may not be able to get certain funding. And so there are a lot of variety of reasons, um, um, even among people who generally agree on the big picture, but kind of really disagree on how to talk about uh, the gender and women aspect of it. All right. So so, uh, do you know the title of the book or when when is it going to come out? We are working on it right now. So we have an article um, in pro- in process. The, the uh, book title will be New Grammars for Reproductive Justice. And um, fingers crossed, um, University of California Press is interested. So hopefully we'll kind of be able to publish with them in a few cool. years. Awesome. Yeah, no, I definitely look forward to that. Uh, well, speaking of book, as always on this podcast, uh, can you recommend three books to our listeners? Yeah, so it'll be related to my uh, research interests right now. I think the first one is uh, Dana Ayn Davis's uh, book called Reproductive Injustice, mm. Racism, Pregnancy, and Premature Birth. Uh, it's by the NYU Press. Uh, Davis herself is a medical anthropologist um, and also a trained doula. Uh, so this is uh, an ethnographic work on uh, medical racism, how medical racism influenced Black women. Uh, who have given birth, especially uh, premature birth and also low low birth weight uh, infants. And so it is a book um, that draw on Ayn Davis's own uh, participant observations and interviews. Um, and so it has won several different awards uh, in 2020 um, in anthropology and ethnographic writing. And see, the second one I would recommend, along a similar line, but it's not an academic book. Uh, it's written by the journalist Danny McClain called we Live, for, we Live for the We, The Political Power of Black Motherhood. So uh, McClain herself was at the time uh, raising a daughter on, on her own as a Black woman, and she encountered a lot of hostile and unjust situations uh, during birth and pregnancy, and so this book, it's her journalistic, it's in part kind of part memoir, personal narrative and part journalistic uh, investigation and interviews with black mothers who have kind of mobilized black motherhood as a basis of their social movement for social change. Hmm. And then the third one, also an NYU press book is called Trans Medicine. Uh, the Emergence and Practice of Treating Gender, and it's written by Steph M. Schuster. Uh, so I kind of talk a li- just a little bit about how queer and trans people uh, often face a lot of marginalization in uh, mainstream birth and pregnancy, reproduction in general, uh, that in, in, to this today, uh, medicine as a field does not have a lot of robust research on trans people, mm-hmm. uh, in part because it's not really valued or they don't think that it's important and so trans medicine is a fascinated uh ethnographic and archival uh research-based book uh so schuster were attending medical conferences uh interviewing medical professionals who practice transgender medicine and looking into archive as well into uh, historical changes and current approaches to gender affirming care and focusing in part 
um, on how existing stigma against trans people influence the research or the lack thereof and also treatment plans. Essentially, it's showing that even physicians who are practicing trans medicine, a lot of them don't really know because they're lacking in research. So it really rely on the physicians, like individual gut feelings and their personal approaches, which again, of course, shows a big limitation um, in gender affirming care. That, that's really interesting. I'm going to get all of them. <laughs> uh, Sharon, thanks a lot for your time again. This has been really informative and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you.